Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. The New You Asked for It, a show that ran in syndication from 1981 to 1983, was a revival of the original 1950s show. Like the original, The New You Asked for It had field correspondents traveling to the ends of the earth to answer and fulfill viewer questions or requests, an example of which could be, show me the inside of the vaults at Fort Knox, or show me some real-life Hawaiian cowboys, and they'd show it to the viewers. Its creator, Art Baker, hosted the original black-and-white show. Famed comedian impressionist Rich Little hosted the 80s remake. I started watching the remake because I was a fan of Rich Little, and I liked to see which celebrity he'd impersonate next. Little always ended every episode with a celebrity impression. I often sat through a lot of dumb viewer requests just to catch his final impression. Why wasn't You Asked For It centered on Rich Little's comedy act? It didn't occur to my 10-year-old mind back then that there were only so many impressions Rich Little could do to fill up a half-hour show before the novelty wore off, even if he was known as the man of a thousand voices. I watched the new You Asked For It every night while I worked on my homework, but to this day I can only remember a single segment I vaguely recall the segment was squeezed somewhere between segments on people kissing Ireland's Blarney Stone and a log rolling contest in Alaska. Or was it between the one on wrestling chimps and Hawaiian cowboys? Well, whatever it was, the segment was both scary and intriguing. A viewer had asked to see the world's craziest wrestler, or something to that effect. Rich Little said the show's correspondents scoured the earth to find him and wound up in Detroit. That's where they found the king of chaos, the master of mayhem, the creator of crimson, the one and only Sheik. Prior to this episode of You Asked For It, I'd never heard of the Sheik. Who was this crazed lunatic bludgeoning his opponents with taped-up sharpened pencils? Who was this evil wizard throwing fireballs in people's faces? I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Where was such a man even allowed to wrestle? Please, God, don't let him come to New York. Keep him confined to Detroit. These were the thoughts whirling through my ten-year-old brain, and yet I couldn't take my eyes off his manic moves in the ring, or the rows of jagged scars on his forehead like rows of shark teeth looking unreal and repulsive at the same time. The scarring was from years of blading his forehead to produce blood for the fans. The fireballs were a magic trick he used to great effect in the ring. No one was throwing fireballs in the WWF, and no one in the WWF was using sharpened pencils on their opponents. When the You Ask For It camera crew snuck up on an unsuspecting sheik in a men's restroom to pin him down for an interview, the sheik lashed out at the cameraman, yelling wild Arabic gibberish and ready to grab the camera with a menacing look that felt more real than anything I'd ever seen in pro wrestling before.
The camera crew backpedaled out of that restroom for dear life. I feared for them. There was no catching the sheik off guard, no cornering him for an interview. He was the one who did the cornering. He was the one who caught you off guard. A few weeks after the You Asked for it episode featuring the Sheik, I ran across a wrestling magazine photo of a referee who'd been burned by one of the Sheik's fireballs. The ref profiling the burned side of his face for the camera was a man named Johnny Red Shoes Dugan. Seeing the photo for the first time, not knowing anything about burns, I assumed the burn was real. I later found out burn wounds are easy to recreate with theatrical liquid latex or by rubbing a little sandpaper to the cheek. Whatever the trick was, it didn't matter because it was enough to make me believe a fireball to the face had burned Dugan. It would be a long time before I'd hear about the cheek again. The next time was when I was in a video rental store back when mom-and-pop rental stores were on every corner, browsing titles in the horror section. The macabre movie title was I Like to Hurt People. I read the blurb on the back cover and discovered the movie was actually a wrestling movie slash documentary of sorts. The movie featured the likes of Ox Baker, Abdullah the Butcher, Terry Funk, Andre the Giant, Dusty Rhodes, and, of course, the Sheik. Now, all of these wrestlers, with the exception of Andre, were known for their penchant for blading. This certainly explained why the movie was banished to the horror section and not the sports section, where all the WrestleManias and Starcades could be found. The next time I got to hear more about the Sheik was when I listened to Brian R. Solomon's Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of the original Sheik. I loved the book, and it made me want to seek out Brian to speak to him and have him be a guest on Wrestling With Heels On. So what you'll hear next is an interview that took place on July 7th, 2023, one month after the death of the Iron Sheik. The Iron Sheik and the original Sheik were completely different wrestlers, but both had an impact on wrestling in general. The conversation is about the book, Brian's upcoming book on Gorilla Monsoon, and other interesting wrestling tidbits that I think you'll enjoy. Just a word of warning, there are some audio glitches throughout the interview. I apologize for those, and I hope you're still able to enjoy the interview there's a lot of great information uh, that Brian puts out there, and Brian is a great guest. So, without any further ado, this is my interview with Brian R. Solomon, the author of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of the original Sheik. Enjoy. Brian, thank you for being on my show, Wrestling with Heels On. Um, I know we were working on this a couple of months, and... Uh, it was uh, a little bit of back and forth, but finally we got it done, and uh, you're here today, so I'm very happy that you're uh, joining our show today. Um, I can't tell you how much I loved Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of the original Sheik, one of the best books that I've listened to in a long time, especially because it's related to a subject that, that is near and dear to my heart, which is wrestling, and um the first thing I got to ask you, Brian, is um, 
What inspired you to take on the subject matter of the original Sheik? Well, I had done a another wrestling book before that, which was called Pro Wrestling FAQ, which I did in 2015. And that's more of like a general reference book. And in the book, it has these profiles of different major wrestling stars. And one of the people I profiled was the Sheik. Because I had been interested in the Sheik for years because I used to read about him in wrestling magazines when I was a kid. And he was already, you know, old by then. But I was just fascinated by this character. And so I started to notice over the years that people were talking about him less and less. And he had been such an important figure in wrestling such an such a main main attraction for years and so i thought okay i can't think of anybody else more deserving of a biography who hasn't already had one than the sheik so that was you know it was easy to me it, when i was deciding who am i going to write my first wrestling biography on it was an easy choice yeah absolutely so you know one of the things uh, that uh, that struck me was that i had the same exposure to the Sheik. Uh, my exposure came to wrestling magazines, but there was an incident that happened even before wrestling magazines that uh, exposed me to the Sheik. And I wanted to know if you remember this incident because you didn't mention it in the book, but I was wondering if it was just something you intentionally left out or maybe forgot about. There was a show called The New You Asked For It, and they covered... Do you remember that show? Yes, I watched it religiously. Yes, and so did I. And uh, Rich Little was the host, and they happened to have a little segment on the original Sheik, um, and they profiled him as this crazy, crazed wrestler from from parts unknown. And I guess somebody had requested who is the craziest wrestler in the world, and they focused on the Sheik. Um, was there a reason that you left that out of the book? Well, I mean, you know, there's only so much that could go in the book, so there were things. There were a few things here and there that that. Uh, did get left out. I, you know, I didn't, there was another time he was on the show uh, bowling for dollars and and I left that out too. It's just, yeah, I couldn't really find a place to work it in, but it did happen at an interesting time because if I remember right, that was right around 80, 81, I think. And it was right around the time that the Sheik was going out of business so uh, it was an it was an unusual time to be profiling him and including him. And if you notice in that clip, Rich Little quotes somebody named Ed Farhat that they talked to uh, from the promotion, the promoter. And the people always go, oh, my God, it's the Sheik's real voice. And that's the Sheik. And they didn't want you to know. And I hate to burst people's bubbles, but the Ed Farhat on that recording on You Asked For It is actually – Ed Farhat Jr., the Sheik's son, who wrestled as Captain Ed George. Wow. Interesting. It is not the Sheik trying to be cute. I wish it was, but it's not. But no, yeah, I didn't include it in the book. You know, a few things like that I couldn't fit in. I already went over over the page count, the word count. I just blew the doors off of it. So I was trying to be a little bit conservative about some things. Sure. And I can understand that. I think the only reason that I listened for it was because uh, and I thought there was a particular time where you were talking about the the, the decline of the business for for the sheik. And um, it looked like he was out to do some more promotional stuff to get his name out there and build up the business. Um, So it was on the downswing. But um, 
as far as and the bowling for dollars is a complete surprise. Was he a participant or a contestant? Um, you know, I don't even fully know because the footage doesn't survive. But people have told me about it. And I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look into my notes. But I think it was – there were a couple of appearances like that. There were some talk shows that he did where he was just in character, just freaking out the audience and freaking out the host. I mean, he did a few things like that. I really highly doubt that he was doing any bowling. I think it was more like he was just being the sheik, you know, just going right. nuts, more like that kind of thing. Gotcha. So um, it's 1947, right? Um, Ed Farhat is making his debut as the sheik. What could we expect as audience members? Take us back in time. What would we expect to see from the original sheik? at his debut wrestling match. Any of the craziness that he had later on, or was it very conservative? None of it. And in fact, he wouldn't have even been called the Sheik. Uh, This was one of the things I kind of uncovered for the book. Basically, for the first, uh, I want to say, year and a half, two years maybe, of his career, he was just wrestling as Eddie Farhat. He was straight out of the Army. He was discharged, I believe, at the beginning of 1946, He had served briefly in World War II. He'd gone through training and all that stuff. He was a tank operator at the age of like 19, 20 years old. And so they capitalized on that when he came back. That was his gimmick, that he was the hometown boy. It was Lansing area. He was the returning GI. His family was kind of known in the community as well. And so that was the angle. Here's this fresh face, baby face. There's pictures of him clean shaven, the whole thing. He's just wearing regular trunks, boots. And he did that for a couple of years. But, you know, it was not a success. It was really just a local thing in the Lansing area, in the you know, Michigan area. And it didn't really – he was still working a regular day job. You know, he was working on the assembly line in one of the auto plants in Detroit. His family had been in that. So they they got him on board there. And um, it isn't until, I think, 1949 that he starts taking on the Sheik persona, which was partly, you know, it was him. It was Her- uh, uh, Burt Ruby, who was the promoter who discovered him, and Burt Ruby's boss, Harry Light, who was the Detroit, the king of, of Detroit wrestling at the time. He was the head guy. And there was also the trainer, Lou Klein trained Eddie Farhat and I think they all kind of put their heads together and came up with this way of kind of spicing things up you know this was right at the beginning of television wrestling characters were really hot high concept gimmicks and things this was you know there had been gimmicks and characters before but television is where it really blew up where they were really thinking of wrestling as a tv show and we need characters so everybody wanted to be a character and once he did that, then it was just a matter of time. I mean, by 52 or 3, he's getting on TV on the national. This is when they had national network wrestling back then. It was out of Chicago, but it was broadcast nationally. And that is really where he was kind of off to the races. People were getting to know who he was. He wasn't a main eventer yet, but he was a known commodity among wrestling fans and audiences. By that point. 
Was any of the bloodletting happening at that time, or no. did that come later? Not really, not really. Um, again, if you watch the early matches, and it's great because there's this archive of wrestling from Chicago, from the International Amphitheater. For whatever reason, it's been preserved um, by, I think, like the Library of Congress or something. And you can find all this footage, and you can watch some of those matches. And they're very conventional. So he's got... The persona, but, it, it, you know, over the years, he kept adding things to it. So in the beginning, he's called the Sheik of Araby. You know, he's wrestling a very conventional match, like everybody else's matches, hold for hold, you know, nothing too crazy. <laughs> As time goes on, he starts to add things. He adds the prayer ritual with the mat. He adds, <laughs> when he goes actually to Capitol Wrestling to wrestle for Vince McMahon Sr., he adds... The slave girl, who is his wife, Joyce, um, right. you know, the fire by the late 50s. He started occasionally doing fire. And then, you know, as he moves up the card is when the matches start getting bloodier and more violent. Because in those days, they would save that stuff. Crazy idea, I know. They would save the wild you know, stuff for the top of the car, the main event. The Usually, when you went to see a wrestling show back then, not like today in the pay-per-view age, right, or the TV where you want to hook people right away, if you went to a wrestling show, first few matches were, I don't want to say dull, but they were very plain, conventional. It was building up. They were building the excitement, and as the show went along, you started seeing bigger stars, you started seeing wilder things. They might go outside the ring. They might do something crazy. You know, there, there'd be false finishes and people kicking out of finishers. You didn't see that stuff until the main events. So once he starts to move up the card, late 50s, early 60s, then it starts getting really violent. And, he, you know, when he takes over big-time wrestling in 1964, from there on, he's main event all the way. And his matches are... You know, by that point, what we expect to see from a Sheik match by the early 60s is really when everything's like fully formed, you know. And in fact, in the beginning, he was called the Sheik of Araby, which was taken from the title of a song. It's a pop song from the 20s, which was based on the old Sheik movie with Rudolph Valentino, which was a huge hit movie, a silent film. But, you know, by the 60s, it had been so far removed from that era. And it was actually Vince senior again, who suggested to him, Hey, shorten your name, just call yourself the Sheik." And again, that's really that point beginning of the sixties is where he's fully formed as the Sheik. Right. Right. So it's a bit of an evolution for him becoming the Sheik, incorporating new uh, tactics, uh, upping up the, uh, the violence, uh, quota. And, uh, so, he gets to that point uh, where now he's a top card guy and um, he is the Sheik. Um, who else was doing what he was doing? Was anybody else going that route or was he truly a pioneer with the uh, bloodletting and the mayhem in the ring? Well, he, you know, he's definitely one of the icons of that style of wrestling, what do you want to call it, the hardcore style. Sometimes people call it garbage wrestling affectionately. But like that style of of really wild brawling, um, he wasn't the first. Uh, 
you know, people debate this, but I mean, you can even go back to the 40s. There was there was Wild Bull Curry, who became a close friend of the Sheik. There was Irish Danny McShane in Texas in the 40s. They were doing things like chair shots outside the ring, uh, you know, table spots in the 40s. Blood. You started seeing blading. I think people even say maybe even, it might even go back to the 30s blading when wrestling's becoming more of a wow, performance. That That's the era where wrestling really becomes a visible performance, the 30s, where you could look at it and go, okay, these guys are putting on a show. You know, I'm not, this is not Olympic wrestling kind of thing. But so the Sheik wasn't the first, but he really was the one who kind of took it to a whole other level in terms of saying this style can be the main event. This style can be, can draw money consistently. And it started pointing the way towards uh, wrestling becoming much more like that and moving away from actual wrestling. So I wouldn't say he was the first, but he was definitely an absolutely essential step in the evolution of violent type of hardcore brawling style wrestling. So uh, another thing that struck me during the listening of the book was, and you mentioned Abdullah the Butcher, but um, I didn't get a sense, uh, and this is not, in no way a criticism, but more of, I, I, I'm a great fan of Abdullah the Butcher. Um, what was his relationship with the sheep? Were they, um, I gather that they worked together and they were okay working together, but um, what was the level of respect between the two for what they were both doing? Huge. Uh, because Abdullah started out, Abdullah's from the Windsor, Ontario area. And that was prime chic territory. That was where they shot their television for years. Because Windsor, for people that don't know the ge geography, even though it's in Canada, it's right across the water, like directly. You could just jump right across the water from Michigan. It's like as close as you can get to Michigan without being in Michigan. So that's where they shot their TV. And when he broke in, uh, in the beginning, again, like Sheik, he was very different. His whole gimmick was based on uh, martial arts, which never really left his persona, but it was more like he's a martial artist. He was very in, much in shape. He was a young guy. And uh, the, he learned so much from the Sheik, as anybody could see who watches him wrestle, um, and I don't want to say ripped off because there were people that did rip off the Sheik, but I don't include Abdullah in that category because Abdullah did all that with the Sheik's blessing. And he was like under the Sheik's wing and the Sheik kind of took him on as a protege, even though he went on to, you know, success in all over the territories in the world. I mean, he first really started becoming really big in, in places like Montreal and Vancouver, but, um, he learned a lot, spent a lot of time with the Sheik, and he became – the Sheik would very often do this thing where he would bring in a heel to be his – especially as he started getting older – to be his tag team partner, and that would help him build – keep his heat going. And then the heel would, like, take a lot of the falls and things, and he would really kind of carry the team. Pampero Furpo did this. Killer Brooks did this. And Abdullah the Butcher was one of those. But then – what would happen is they would always turn turn on each other. I mean, it was inevitable. Sometimes 
The right. heel partner would go face. The sheik would stay heel. In the case of Abdullah, though, I'm pretty sure they were both still heel. It was just a heel versus heel. Like, let's just see these two maniacs destroy each other kind of thing. Yeah. But the Sheik was hugely instrumental right. in his career, really got him going, got him, helped to get him off the ground for sure. And they remained tight ever since, wrestling in Japan together all through the 70s. I mean, they were very close. Sure. Yeah. So that brings to mind uh, the fact that both men were proficient bladers. Uh, they were, that was part of their, uh, their craft. Um, there was an incident where Abdullah bladed somebody who had not given him permission to blade and uh, apparently was sued because the guy uh, caught Pepsi, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, was there any situations where the sheep might have bladed somebody who did not want to, was not a willing participant? All the time. <laughs> it happened all the time. Okay. Um, it was something that he would do to spice up a match or a situation. He was known to have blades taped to the ends of his fingers or to have them hidden in other places. He would keep, he would keep one in his, in the waistband of his trunks, which just seems like a recipe for disaster. He would keep them in places where he could get to them easily. And sometimes he was known to just lash out and maybe cut a referee, cut a security guy, cut the opponent without them even knowing it was going to happen. Like I talked to A.T. Huck, who was a referee in the area at the end of Sheik's career, and he said how he refereed a Bobo Brazil and Sheik match, and Sheik did that to him, and he didn't even know it happened. Like, at first, he's, like, looking and going, like, whose blood is that? And he's like, oh, it's my blood. And, and he said he has a scar to this day. It was not that uncommon in these do in those days. He also had them in case he had to do that to a fan, and I think he did occasionally over the years if he was being attacked or somebody was trying to rush him, he might do that. So not uncommon. And I heard, you know, there was a story of – there's a few things that didn't make the book because I didn't feel confident enough they couldn't be confirmed and it was more just like rumor and I didn't feel responsible putting it in there. And I did – there was a rumor that the Sheik had to deal – with Hep C at some point, like Abdullah did, but oh, I could not confirm it to my satisfaction, so I didn't include it in the book. Not hard to imagine, though. I mean, um, this was a guy who was blading in every match at, at you know throughout the later decades of his career, and you know a lot of times double blading, you know, which was very common practice before AIDS and. Uh, uh, now C has come back to full bloom in pro wrestling, but for years in wrestling throughout right. the 80s and 90s and beyond, when there was blood in a match, very often it would only be one of the two people for that reason. In right. Sheik's day, that was not the case. You know, there were a lot of guys like that. There was Dusty Rhodes. There was superstar Billy Graham. You know, I think he had a, a hep C situation. They were, they were people that were just bleeding all the time in wrestling. It became a very popular tool to use. Um, and the Sheik, of course, was on the front line of that. <laughs> right, right. So uh, with that in mind, I also want to talk about the fire that he used because, um, like you, I uh, truly enjoyed wrestling magazines. It's where I got a lot of the... Uh, exposure to different types of wrestlers and different organizations. 
case in the magazine. And I said to myself, wow, this guy's the real deal. He can burn somebody. But it turns out there's a lot more theatric, uh, theatricality to that kind of burning. Can you tell us what, um, what's involved with that? Sure. That got, that same picture got me too. I remember, um, uh, there was the, in 1991, they came out with the 25th anniversary of the wrestler magazine. The wrestler was, a sister publication of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and it actually predated Pro Wrestling Illustrated. It went back to the 60s. And they put out the 25th anniversary issue, summer of 91. I picked it up off the newsstand. In those days, I didn't know much about wrestling outside of the WWF. I had only really just started even watching WCW. Like, I really had, my knowledge was limited. That magazine was the beginning of where I am now. That magazine, that issue was the beginning of, oh, my God, this this thing has a crazy history. It's not just what I'm seeing on TV. And there was a, that picture in there. It was Johnny Redshoes Dugan. And the match, what I found out was it was the Sheik versus Pompero Furpo in Los Angeles in the L.A. Uh, Olympic Auditorium. And I looked at that, and that's when I said, okay, is this real? It was that question that we always used to have back then. Like, like I guess some of the things are real. Some matches are real. Like, I could see Hulk Hogan's not really real, but this, maybe this is real? Because how did this guy get burned? And it was so fascinating to me. But, again, it's a thing, the same thing with the blood, obviously. They produce these effects. And what I later discovered, too, was that for the burning effect, what they would do, and it was similar to blading where you would have to do it to yourself, right? They would, uh, the benefit with the burning was if you're blading, if you're in the ring, you have to do it in real time while the match is going on and you have to make sure you're not going to get caught or seen by any fan or anything. But with the burning effect, you could do it after the fact. So you could say, oh my God, the sheet threw fire in this guy's face. We're going to put a towel over his head. We're going to rush him back to the locker room for medical attention. <laughs> you don't see that guy. And then okay. later you see a photo come out, right, where you see him burned. And the way they would do it, I discovered, was one of two ways. They would sometimes use um, sandpaper, and you would, have, you, would, you would rub the sandpaper on your face. I'm sure – I hope they paid well for this. You'd rub the sandpaper on you right. to get a burning, to like peel the skin and get a burning effect. Another way, which sounds almost worse in a way, is they would use a towel, just a towel. Can you imagine how hard and for how long you have to do that? I guess for guys maybe that were squeamish about the sandpaper, you would take like a terry cloth towel right. and just rub it on your face really hard and oh, wow. until you started burning the skin away. And apparently, well, I don't know which method, probably the sandpaper. That is what Red Shoes Dugan did to get that shot, which, by the way, that shot was taken by Theo Eret, who was, who was probably the greatest wrestling photographer of all time. He was based out in California. He used to shoot a lot of the California stuff, but he did other places, too. Right. If you look at his photos, I mean, they're like up there with any of the great sports photography. It's like he's in a league by himself as far as wrestling photography goes. That is great. Wow. So so there's a little bit of an art to, to the burn, too. Um, and it's great that the ref Dugan was able to, uh, you know, was willing, a willing participant, right? I mean, oh, yeah, you know, not, just to sell the fire gimmick. No, I mean, you had to go along with it. 
Yeah. I mean, they didn't have yeah, to. That is they great. Didn't have to take that shot. It was more like, hey, let's do this and we'll build up the mystique of the Sheik and we'll, you know, we'll draw some money with this guy. But obviously it was something that everybody on board had to be okay with, you know. Of course. Right. So going back to fire, different kind of fire. There, uh, and I would not have researched this had it not been for your book, but, um, and YouTube, of course, is a great resource. Uh, I looked up that fire fight in Japan between Terry Funk and, well, actually, no, I don't think it was Terry Funk. I think it was um, the Sheik and um, his nephew and where the blaze just got completely out of control. Yeah. And the, the, they couldn't continue. I was shocked by that. I said to myself, who, who thought of this? A, cause this was seemed like a crazy idea right from the get go. And two, um, the fact that nobody was, was seriously injured during this or at least died. Nobody died, but this could have been a real fiasco, right? Yeah, the Sheik was seriously injured during it. Um, oh, he was. Yeah. He got third degree burns on his back. And, um, he, which is the kind of burn where it's like, it's almost down to the muscle, you know, the skin just kind of right in the way. And, um, it was, so it was Sheik and Sabu against Tarzan Goto and Atsushi Onita, who was the promoter for FMW. And they had invented this kind of match. Apparently they'd done it before. It was a barbed wire fire death match or whatever the heck, where basically, the ropes were replaced with barbed wire and then the barbed wire was wrapped with rags that were soaked in kerosene and lit on fire. So the ropes are on fire basically. Recipe for disaster. The problem, not to say that it would have been perfect otherwise, they did the match outdoors. It was like in a big giant parking lot and it was very windy. So the fire became an inferno very quickly. And by the way, speaking of inferno, this match, this style of match was the inspiration for doing the inferno match in WWF. Although they they had to come up with a much safer way to do it, obviously, which they did with Kane right, and Undertaker. Right. I think it was Kane and Undertaker. It was definitely Kane involved in it. But um, in this case, it was like from the second it started, it was almost like they knew this was not going to be able to happen. And the match gets called off really quickly. Basically the four guys get in the ring and then it's almost like, they're like, okay, screw this. We got to get out of the ring. This is not happening. And the problem became that the sheet, look, this is 1990. I want to say four. The Sheik is Mm -hmm. 68, maybe 67. He's on social security. He's somebody's grandpa. He can barely walk, you know, his hips, his knees. He's an old, you know, he's not, it's not like he's ancient. I mean, but for wrestling, he surely is. I mean, he's way old to be, way too old to be doing what he was doing. And he was, and the, the, the whole, the crazy thing was he, he, he could barely get in the ring. So imagine trying to get out of the ring when the ring is on fire. That was the issue. Everybody fled. Sabu right. wrote about it in his book where he basically like leaped out of the ring. No problem for Sabu. That's what he did. And then he goes, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. He looks back. My uncle's still in there. I have to go get him. And if you watch right. the video, it's insane because the Sheik, they finally get him out of there. They're spraying him down with water. They're throwing water on him. You can't. It's like with any kind of burn, you can't tell right away how bad it is. If you've ever gotten a burn, you know that. Right. 
it's it, it hurts, but you don't yeah. really know. Like you can't see the tissue damage right away. So when he gets out of the ring, he looks like he's fine. You can't tell he's been severely burned yet. And the crazy thing is he's still in character. He's at ringside. The young boys are coming over. They're dousing him with water. He is lunging at people in character. Not only that, but he starts throwing his fireballs while the guy had almost just been burned to death in this flaming ring. <laughs> He's out there throwing the fireballs, right. chasing people around. And he wound up, you know, he was severely right. burned. He went home from the tour. This is the crazy thing. He was gone for three weeks recovering and then went back to Japan and continued the tour. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and I, and that's the, 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 you know, what struck me listening to the book was uh, how um, how resilient the uh, the sheik was as, as a performer. The fact that he could withstand so much blading in his life and all these crazy matches, and he just never seemed to stop. Um, was that just a part of his uh, general nature as a person, and uh, not as a sheik? Just was Ed Farhat the type of person who just Never knew when to say no or never knew when to quit. Well, he was a very tenacious person, and he had to be to succeed in the business at that time. You know, he built himself up from nothing. Uh, he became a territorial promoter in an era when it was still transitioning. You still had most of the promoters who were businessmen. They were not wrestlers. I mean, there were many who were. But you still had a lot of like guys who basically were, I'm just a promoter. I promote a lot of things. I promote music. I promote sports. I promote wrestling. And so he had to make his way in that business. He also was one of the only non-white promoters in the mm. whole territorial era. Mm -hmm. Pedro Martinez was another one in, in New York. But, I mean, that was a big deal, uh, most of the time, it was very hard for, if you think about the, both his ethnicity and the character he played, you know, there's a letter in the book from Sam Muchnick, the NWA president, between him and Johnny Doyle, who was the former Detroit area promoter, where they're basically saying, Muchnick is saying, like, I'm embarrassed to tell people that the Sheik is actually the promoter in Detroit, because it just mm. makes wrestling look ridiculous. Like, he was kayfabing his wife about it because he was embarrassed to tell his right. wife, yeah, the Sheik is promoting wrestling in Detroit. So he had to overcome all that stuff. And not only that, but, look, it became a thing of necessity. By the time you get to the 80s, he's bankrupt. He's got gambling issues. He's got addiction issues. His marriage is crumbling. Right. Wrestling is the thing that he knows how to do, and he knows how to make money at. That's the thing people don't realize when they say – why do these wrestlers keep coming back? When do they, how come they don't know when to stop? For some of these guys, it's all that they know how to make money at really well. And when you're in a, if you're in a situation like this, it's one thing if nobody wants you and you're forgotten and you're wrestling in front of nobody and you're not making any money. If you're a big enough name in the business where people can still come to you and say, hey, come to Japan, do this match, we'll pay you $10,000 a match. Who in the world is going to say no to that, especially if you if you have no money and, and they're talking about foreclosing on your house? Of course he kept doing it. I would do it. I don't even know how to wrestle. <laughs> sure. yeah, okay, great. Yeah, where do you want me to be? Yeah. What do I do? You know. So that's why a guy like the Sheik would do it because he would say, oh, my God, I blew through my money. I'm broke again. 
oh, but if I do this tour over here, I can mm-hmm. make hundreds of thousands of dollars and we'll be out of the hole. Okay, I'll do it. So right. that's what would happen. You know, yeah. understandable, it, I think. I don't think it's any different than uh, musicians and bands that get together and uh, they might have one member of the band still left from the original lineup and then right. they'll call themselves the famous, you know, Pink Floyd. But meanwhile, there's one person left. Yeah, if, there's, if, if it's time to pay the bills, you're in debt or whatever, and you know I have a way that I can make a lot of money really quickly that most people in my situation don't have, I'm going to take advantage of it. Why not? Sure. Absolutely. And you're right. He was very tenacious. And uh, speaking of, you know, really um, being consumed by subject matter, you mentioned in the book uh, towards the end um, that when you were giving um, credit to the people that helped you with the book, you mentioned that um, you were your wife and the fact that she was uh, very supportive while you were all consumed by the sheep. How far did your consumption with the cheek uh, with the sheik go? And um, was there ever a point where you felt like this too much sheik? Like I got to get away from this. It's it's in my head too much. Well, it took over my life. I mean, I signed the contract in November 2019. I finished the manuscript in March 2021. We were still doing post production all through 2021. So basically, for two years. It was my life. And I had a lot of things happen during those two years, actually. It took longer than it even would have. I had um, a lot of family issues I was dealing with. I had um, elderly relatives that had come into my care, people passing away, elderly relatives in my family, selling a family home, emergency things, plus COVID. It was all happening Mm. while COVID. Oh, my God, yes. You know, I had to keep my focus on my work, too, at the same time, and it had to become an obsession. It was the only way I was going to get it done in time, you know, and I I became so caught up that, you know, by the time I got to the end of it, I really felt like I knew him. It was this weird feeling of this is somebody's life, and when we get to the end of it, at the end of the book, I was actually very emotional about it. Because I felt like I'd lost somebody that I came to know. I know it sounds crazy, but it did get me very emotional for a bit there. But I think when you're writing a book like this, and you also, because you have a time frame you have to get it done in, you have to become obsessed about it. Otherwise, you're not gonna you're not gonna get it done. Like right now, I'm I'm obsessed with Gorilla Monsoon because that's my next book. Right. And that's become my obsession. Where I'm laying in bed at night next to my wife, and I'll go, lights are off, and I'm going. You know, I have to figure out why, you know, what his relationship with, was with Bruno San Martino. Were they <laughs> friends? Because, you know, uh, uh, Bruno was from a different part of Italy, from Gorilla, and Gorilla was American born, and Bruno wasn't. So, and also, Gorilla was in the front office, and Bruno wasn't. So, did they trust each other? Did they like each other? And she's going, can we just go to sleep? Is that okay? It's <laughs> like right. we have situations like that where right. it's like it's like that scene in Annie Hall where he's Woody Allen is like breaking down the Kennedy assassination with <laughs> his girlfriend and she's trying to go to sleep or have sex or whatever. Right, right. Talk about. <laughs> so Oswald was in the grassy knoll, but then Harry Ruby shot him. That's how I get when I'm writing sure. these wrestling books. Totally. And here's a, and here's a little bit of a segue between Gorilla 
and the original Sheik. And I find this character a very fascinating person in wrestling. Bobby Heenan. Uh, I know Bobby Heenan was super close to Gorilla Monsoon. I've seen some shoots on uh, YouTube where Bobby just, you know, he loved Gorilla. And uh, that's the sense I got. And, uh, and he also said great things about Eddie Farhat, saying that Ed Farhat gave him his start when he was uh, starting out in wrestling. What um, Can you talk a little bit about the, the link between both of them uh, as far as Bobby Heenan is concerned? Yeah, it's true. Bobby Heenan was somebody who was close with both of them and liked both of them in very different ways, um, which is interesting because Gorilla and the Sheik – didn't have much interaction. They had some, they tag teamed a couple of times when Gorilla was in the capital territory, but Bobby Heenan was kind of the connection between the two of them that he had known both of them really well. The Sheik was a bit of a mentor to Bobby Heenan. Bobby was a kid. Bobby grew up in Indiana, which was like Dick the Bruiser, Sheik, Bobo Brazil kind of territory. And Bobby idolized the Sheik. He was a fan as a kid watching wrestling in the fifties. And so, you know, when the Sheik was getting big. And so when he was just starting out on some of those cards, he would be, he would do whatever the Sheik said. He would park his car. He Mm. would run errands for him. And he would actually have, he had a similar relationship with Dick the Bruiser too, although he and Dick the Bruiser had a falling out, which never happened with Bobby and the Sheik. Uh, So he always had a fondness for the Sheik. He was one of those people, you know, it depends who you talk to. Like Gorilla is very different. Gorilla is somebody that, it doesn't matter who you talk to. Everybody loved him. Mm. Everyone. And the tiny percentage of people that maybe don't have the most complimentary things to say, you can always tell they have an axe to grind. They're bitter about something. Maybe they didn't get their WWF break that they wanted to get. There's always right. a reason. <laughs> but everybody loved Gorilla. Everyone. Right. But with Sheik, that's not the case. Depends who you talk to. There are a lot of people that had legitimate gripes about him. And there were people who loved him. And Bobby Heenan was one of the people who loved him. And then, of course with Gorilla. I mean, that was the defining friendship of both of their lives. And they didn't really meet until they were middle-aged men, you know, but it was, and they'd been in the business for years, both of them, but it was the defining friendship. Um, I mean, they loved each other as close as you could possibly love a friend. They loved each other. It was beyond wrestling. It was beyond TV. Their families vacation together. Oh, wow. Bobby was Yes, they and they continued to hang out and spend time even after Bobby went to WCW because there was nobody that was going to tell Gorilla Monsoon who he could and couldn't be friends with, and that includes Vince McMahon. That was not happening. Good for Gorilla. Um, That's great. And Bobby was one of the pallbearers at at Gorilla's funeral, and he was he was like the last person at the coffin um, at the funeral. So I mean, they were that's how close they were. They were as close as you could be. Yeah. And, you know, those are the great things to hear in wrestling. You don't hear enough about that, about the closeness and the the camaraderie that that builds in wrestling and that that kind of you always hear about the, uh, you know, he sucked and blah, 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 all the, the, you know, the negative negative sayings. But ultimately, when you have uh, that kind of partnership, that's great to to hear about. And uh, so uh, moving on, I I know you don't have a lot of time. How was uh, the relationship between? Okay, um, the Iron Sheik and the original Sheik. Being that uh, recently we lost the Iron Sheik about a month ago, uh, to the date, by the way, June seventh. Um, what? Um, yes, he died on the on the Sheik's birthday. Insane on the original Sheik's birthday. 
Oh, really? See, I yeah. did not know that. Wow. Yes, okay. he's white on the original sheep's birthday. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. So in, in light of the fact that the, the uh, Iron Sheik is now has the Sheik moniker, how, how much of a rivalry was between us? So I, I, I know that the, the original Sheik um, kind of gave him this blessing and said, okay, it's all right to use the Sheik. But how did the Iron Sheik feel okay. about the Sheik? Yeah, it, eventually that happened. It was not something that was done with his consent. Um, it's a complicated story, and I saw the WWE A&E documentary of the Iron Sheik or from earlier this year. I, w- I was a little disappointed but not surprised that there was nothing in there about the original Sheik and the connection because I think that's, that's important to understanding Khosrow Vaziri, the Iron Sheik's story. So when when he first got his name from Vern Gagne in the mid-70s, the Iron Sheik, the Sheik was already one of the biggest names in the entire wrestling industry. And I believe, talking about people that didn't like the Sheik, people had access to grind, one of those people was Vern Gagne, that the creation of the Iron Sheik was partly intended as a knock on the original Sheik. Now, there had been uh, a wrestler, this is my theory, because you say, well, Iron Sheik, that's an odd name. Like, why would you, you think about it now and you go like, where did that come from? Who thought to call him Iron? What's the significance of that? There had been a wrestler before him, Spiros Arion, who was Greek, who called himself the Iron Greek as a nickname. And the reason he called himself the Iron Greek is there had been a, a famous Greek wrestler years and years ago. Jim Londos, who called himself the Golden Greek. So it was like kind of an inside joke, like he was the Golden Greek, I'm the Iron Greek. Mm. So basically, I believe that Ganya and his wife, who was instrumental too in the naming, said, okay, well, we have the Iron Greek. Wouldn't it be funny if we called you the Iron Sheik? It's kind of funny. <laughs> right. Kind of rhymes too. <laughs> where, yeah, it rhymes and it's, you know, but if you, in those early years, wherever he went outside the AWA, he would never be called the Iron Sheik. When he would go to places where the Sheik was known, he used different names. He goes to the WWF in the late 70s. They call him Great Hussein Arab. That was his name. Or he would be Ali Vaziri or Muhammad, whatever, if he would go to Texas or he'd go to Florida, like California, places where fans knew Eddie Farha. So you're not going to call yourself anything Sheik-related there. It isn't until the early 80s when the Sheik is out on his ass. Basically, big-time wrestling's out of business. He gets blacklisted by the NWA in 1981. He's considered a non-entity. He has no political power. That's when they're like, okay, screw the Sheik. Now we're going to call you the Iron Sheik. And when he comes back, you know, he's wrestling in Georgia in 83 for Jim Barnett as the Iron Sheik. And then Vince brings him, Vince Jr., to the WWF, calls him the Iron Sheik. Uh, the, the Sheik was not happy about this at first at all. And it was, you know, that's why he started billing himself as the original Sheik, which was kind of a thorn in the side that he had to do that because he's going like, I'm the Sheik. I am the wrestling Sheik. And now I have to call myself the original Sheik because you got this guy. And And keep in mind... Now, and this is where the A and E thing. I know I'm I know I'm rambling on this, but this is a hot button issue for me. 
the A&E thing never really explains it. The Iron Sheik, not to take anything away from him, one of the great wrestling villains. Absolutely. Nowhere near the level of star and draw and main event attraction that the original Sheik was in his prime. Not even close. The Iron Sheik was part of a cast of characters. He was briefly main event when they were doing the thing with Hulk Hogan. Uh, For most of his WWF years, he was tag team or mid-card. And that was the case a lot of places where he went. That was not the case with the Sheik. The Sheik was main event everywhere he went, top draw, in many years, the top box office attraction in the entire industry. You could never say that about the Iron Sheik. Again, not a knock. What the Iron Sheik had was that he was a part of that cast. He was part of the national WWF. Mm-hmm. The Sheik never had that benefit of being with that WWF marketing machine behind him. Cartoons, ice cream, lunch boxes, the whole thing. Cindy Lauper, Mr. T, right? <laughs> right. Um, but the Sheik was part of the Iron Sheik was part of the cast. He was a character on the show. The original Sheik was the show. He was the whole show on most of the cars that he was on. So, so he was bitter in the beginning. But as years went on, that kind of went away, and the Iron Sheik actually did get to spend time with Ed Farhat. He went to his house uh, in Michigan. Wow. They, they worked a couple of shows. They never wrestled against each other. That would have been amazing. Mm-hmm. They did a couple of tag teams on independent shows in the Midwest in that kind of like mid to late 80s era, and eventually Ed Farhat made his peace with it. Because the thing about Khosrow Vaziri is what he had going for him, which you have to acknowledge and respect, is he was much more the genuine article than Eddie Farhat was. Hmm. Eddie Farhat was a Catholic Arab born in the United States, spoke English, um, who took on this persona. Khosrow Vaziri was Iranian. He spoke Farsi. He was from the Middle East. He worked for the Shah of Iran. I mean, he was much closer to react to the reality. I'm not saying that he actually was like that in real life, but he was closer. His persona was closer to the real him than in the case of Eddie Farhat. So I think that Farhat eventually came to respect that. And definitely towards the end of his life, he respected more that this man made a living with this name and had great success and good for him. So it was like this full circle thing, but it was not always like that. So that's my long answer. So. No, no, I, I, it's a great answer. And um, one of the things, too, I mean, you could, anybody who wanted to know the distinction between the two wrestlers could just look at their wrestling styles. I mean, uh, Iron Sheik was, a, was a, I think, it appeared to be a gifted wrestler who had an Olympic or at least semi-Olympic background to his wrestling. And, um, yep. and you know, Eddie Farhat was just mayhem unleashed. And you never really saw that from... Uh, from the Iron Sheik, he wasn't that, that kind of wrestler. His he was more uh, you know grappler than anything, right? The Iron Sheik was a was a shooter. I mean, beyond a shooter, he was a hooker. He was the kind of wrestler that could defeat anybody, and that was one of the reasons why Backlund agreed to lose to him. Was Backlund was also a real wrestler? Backlund mm-hmm. was the kind of a wrestler who could beat anybody on any given night. If the match turned into a shoot, nobody had a prayer. And the Sheik was in the same class, and I think uh, of wrestler, and I think Backlund recognized that. Backlund recognized that in a shoot, even I couldn't beat Khosrow Vaziri, the Iron Sheik. And Eddie, Eddie Farhat was a very different. Eddie Farhat was a character. Eddie Farhat was a gimmick. Now, 
he could wrestle. He wrestled at, he wrestled amateur. He wrestled in the army. He was European theater of operations, army wrestling champion. He did, he did know how to wrestle, but he was not, he never used it in as part of his in ring work. Whereas the iron sheet did. And you could tell that the iron sheet knew what he was doing in there. And also Eddie Farhat was never a, a, a wrestler, a real wrestler on the level that Vaziri was. Vaziri was a world-class amateur wrestler. So, yes, I mean, that's for whatever that's worth in the professional business, that also was another big distinction between the two of them, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, uh, neither one of them are with us today. And, of course, uh, they we owe a lot in terms of uh, wrestling history to, to pay attention and uh, give a lot of credit to both of those guys for what they've done as far as you know, Iron Sheik for transitioning from one era, the Backlund era, to the Hogan era, and of course, um, the original Sheik for creating a whole new style of wrestling, hardcore wrestling. Now, how 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 often do hardcore wrestlers of today give credit to the Sheik? And I'll just throw a name out, for example, Mick Foley. Has he credited the Sheik as being an influence? I've never heard Mick Foley talk about the Sheik, so I don't know. I know Mick grew up as a big WWF guy uh, at a time when the Sheik was no longer going there. So I really don't know if he – I don't know about him in particular. Sure. He's a smart guy, though. He knows his wrestling history, so it's possible. But the difference was I don't think he had a chance to see the Sheik in his formative years as a fan. That's the difference. Right. But but I think – one thing that helped to keep the Sheik alive for a little bit was ECW because you had Sabu there and Sabu. I mean, you can't have any bigger ambassador for the Sheik than Sabu. And Paul Heyman also was a fan and they brought the Sheik in. Sheik worked one match at the ECW arena, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Tommy Dreamer, you know, worships the Sheik. So some of those hardcore wrestlers, they do understand that. And like I said, Sabu. But now we're at the point. You know, it's kind of scary where it's like 30 years removed from Sabu and ECW. And nowadays, even different from back then, you have so many younger fans that they know about Sabu. They have no idea about the original Sheik. That would not have been the case in the early 90s. In the early 90s, everybody knew, oh, yeah, that's the guy. He's the Sheik's nephew. Like the Sheik was the more famous one Mm -hmm. and Sabu was getting the rub. But now it's like you show somebody the Sheik picture and they go. Isn't that Sabu? That happens all the time. <laughs> right, they right. Sure. Looks so much alike. Right. That would not have happened 30 years ago, and especially now. Sabu now, as an older man, looks almost exactly like his uncle. I mean, it's right. like remarkable how much he looks like him. But I mean, still, Sabu in the wrestling world is still to this day an ambassador for his uncle. But it's just that's the way it goes. As time goes by, the memories get fainter and fainter. And I like to think that a book like my book, hopefully helps to keep it alive. That was my goal from the beginning. So that's it. Absolutely. And mission accomplished because uh, not only did it wake up the nostalgia for me, but I think anybody listening to this is not only going to learn about the sheet, but it's also going to get a good uh, history of the battles between the territories, the wrestling territories. That's a, I think that's a really big, important crux of your book is uh, how you delved into the the territories, the battles, the rivalries, um, that it just didn't happen overnight. WWF sprung up and that was it. And 
that there was a lot of fighting going on to get to where we are today. Yes, and the Sheik's territory was already gone by the time that Vince was expanding with the WWF. So uh, it really was a relic of a different time. But uh, the, the Sheik went under in 1980, his territory, and Vince didn't come to Detroit until 1983. So, you know, it was already done. But the territory system, it's so important to understand what the territory system was about. And I'm, it's, it's cool to see how nowadays there seems to be a lot more of a conversation about that, even with younger fans, than you would ever see when I was a young fan, when it was like it might as well have been the Jurassic period. Like you never heard people talking about it, especially in the WWF territory, because it was it was dead, you know, by, by the 90s. So uh, but what I wanted to do in the book was to give the bigger picture. Right. So the Sheik story, some of it is still shrouded in mystery. So what I did to make up for that was I'm going to give the context. I'm going to put the Sheik and his territory in the context of the entire wrestling business and talk about what he meant to the business, what the territory meant, how it was different from other territories, what was going on. It's this whole story of the Sheik rising to power getting the territory, running the territory, and then you get to the 80s, the whole thing falling apart, the WWF coming into the picture, what that meant for the business. So, yeah, it is a bigger story than just one man's life, but it's how everything related to his life. Right. So here's a little uh, little tidbit. I was, I was thinking about this. I said to myself, this is such a, a great cinematic uh, not, uh, not now, a book that you wrote uh, about the, the times of the sheep. In your mind, if you had to cast somebody to be the sheep in a movie, uh, let's say your book is options for a movie, who would you pick? You uh, could be an actor that's currently uh, with us or somebody from the past. Who could play the sheep? It's so funny. It's so funny you asked me this because I just recently discovered that in this new Von Erich movie that they're making, The Iron Claw. I don't know if you know about that. Oh, I, do, I didn't studio, know that. A24, A24, which is an independent movie studio. They're making a movie called The Iron Claw. In fact, I think they're done filming. And it's about the Von Erichs. And in the movie, Chavo Guerrero Jr. plays the Sheik at Forehead. Wow. To my knowledge, to my knowledge, this is the first time that the Sheik has ever been portrayed in a movie by anybody. Uh, now, now, obviously, Chavo Guerrero is not an actor, uh, at least beyond pro wrestling, whatever that entails as far as acting goes. <laughs> right, so the right. fact that they have him playing the Sheik tells me it's probably a pretty small role. It's probably mainly an in-ring kind of a thing. Right. I think it's pretty cool. You know, I can see a passing resemblance, especially <laughs> if he's going to be in his gear and everything. And Chavo's one of those guys that usually – and the Guerrero whole family, this is part of their legacy – he helps to train actors to wrestle in movies. You hear about that a lot. Oh, One of okay. the people that worked on Glow, things like that, he helps uh, train uh, actors. Yeah, and like Mickey so Rourke, right? Maybe uh, when he played the wrestler? I think he did. Yeah, I think he okay. did. Or he was involved. And mm -hmm. so it was very easy to say, well, Chavo's on set. He kind of looks like the Sheik. Let's use him. Oh, wow. And I, I think that's one because the Sheik did spend some time wrestling in the Dallas area. But it, now, if you're doing a movie about the Sheik's life, which hope maybe somebody sees the Iron Claw and they go, hey, we make a movie about that guy. Yeah. That's interesting. Did anybody ever see a book about him? I think that would be fun. But I don't know. You know, I think somebody gave me a suggestion recently, and I don't remember what it was, 
the key is problem. It's not a problem, but it's, it, the, 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 the movie industry in 2023, you would have to make sure that it was an actor of Arabic descent, certainly. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the past, they would just say, well, as long as he kind of looks like Eddie Farhat, if mm-hmm. he's Italian or if he's Mexican or if he's, you know, it doesn't matter as long as he could pass for that physical part. But I think it would be important today that the actor should be somebody of Arabic or Middle Eastern descent, which limits the pool. So I'm not 100% sure. I, I, I have to give it some thought. I know there's some good actors out there who could do it. I have people in mind visually. Hmm. But uh, I'm hoping, you know, it seemed like such a long shot to me. The idea, because my wife would say, hey, maybe they'll make a movie about it. And I'm like, you know, they've been putting out wrestling biographies for almost 25 years now, starting with Mick Foley and tons of them. Not one of them has ever been made into a movie. Now, that changed, too, because now they're making a movie out of the book about Mildred Burke. There was a biography of Mildred Burke that came out about six or seven years ago. They're making a movie on that book. So it opens the possibility that maybe someday we'll, someone will look at Blood and Fire and say, hey, this would make a good movie. So sure. I don't think it's that much of a long shot anymore. So it's interesting to me. I don't know. i gotta, I got to make a short list. I have no idea right now who should play him. Yeah, but that's something to ponder, you know, and, uh, you know, I think the angle would be the very angle that you mentioned, which is um, nowadays, uh, because uh, Eddie was of Arabic descent, um, and maybe take it from that approach as far as uh, here's somebody who was a champion, a wrestler who was Arabic, uh, maybe not versed in the language per se, right? But um, this is a story of uh, an Arabic American family that did well in Detroit and uh successful uh wrestler yeah. um so i would maybe take it from that vantage point i think that would be a good uh good thing and speaking speaking of which what what kind of um reaction have you gotten from the arabic community about the book or any reactions the first reaction i got actually was when i went out to michigan i went out to michigan in may to accept an award for the book from the library of michigan that's great it was congratulations the michigan library Thank you. One of the Michigan notable books of the year. And so I went out there with my daughter and we're at this event where all the authors are being honored. There were like 20 or 30 books that were selected and everyone's being honored. And so, look, I'm the guy that writes about wrestling, but I'm there with all these scholars and, you know, these intellectuals and people who have written books about serious subjects, sociology and this or that. And because in the Michigan area, in Lansing, in that Detroit area, there still to this day is a big Arabic community. There's a lot of immigration there. Some of these people were of Arab descent or from the Middle East. And in a couple of cases, there were people who had written books about Middle Eastern issues or Arabic American issues. And I have to say, when I first got there, I remember going, like, oh, these people are going to kill me. I have to go hide under a table somewhere. <laughs> what are they going to say to me for writing, you know, celebrating this guy who, you know, like used this culture as a way to make people hate him, right? Um, but it was very positive, very positive. That's great. There were people who were kind of like Arabic uh, cultural scholars who were young people 
who were fascinated, who didn't know about him, and who started asking around. And if you ask anybody over the age of 50 in the Detroit area to this day, they know who the Sheik was, whether they were wrestling fans or not. So <clears throat> they started learning. They wanted to learn about this guy, like how interesting that he did this thing at a time when you could do something like that. Because I said at the time that he did this, and believe me, I looked high and low. There was not a single protest. There was not a single voice raised against him other than just, you know, as a heel wrestler, like we hate him, we want him to get beat. But there was nothing. There was no like, how could you present this character? I don't right. Know no outrage or anything like that. No, there was nothing. Now, there would be today, of course, but there was nothing then, not a peep. And so they were fascinated by this as well. It was like a relic of a very interesting time in American entertainment. A big thank you to Brian R. Solomon for being on my show. Check out Brian's weekly wrestling podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle. And also keep a lookout for his new book coming out next year, Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. I know I'll be looking for that. And um, you could probably get it in Audible. I'm sure Brian will do the narration for that as well. Thank you for listening to Wrestling With Heels On. Join me in two weeks, maybe, and we'll take another stroll down Villain Lane. Only on the Sports History Network. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.